Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I am beyond excited to welcome a prolific performer whose voluminous output has assured her place as an icon in the landscape of modern horror. With over 130 credits to her name, she's appeared in such celebrated fright flicks as The Frankenstein Syndrome, The Violent Kind, Abominable, Tales of Halloween, and the recent Victor Crowley. She's also popped up on TV with roles on shows like 12 Monkeys and Robot Chicken, as well as making her mark in music videos alongside some of pop music's biggest icons. She's a legend and consummate performer, and also a dear friend. Please welcome to the show, Tiffany Shepis. Hi! Hi, Tiffany! That was an amazing intro. I think I need you to write that for my Wikipedia page. <laughs> you know, uh, the hardest thing about writing your intro is like, what movies do I pick? You have been in so many. Ah, uh, you're sweet. But those were a, a, a good pick. Like, th- that would be a good solid, like, if somebody was like, what are your top five movies you've, you've been in? Like, that would be, like, pretty much right, pretty spot on. Oh, excellent. Well, I did my, I did my best. Thank I, you. And, of course, I had to include Tales of Halloween because it's the October season. It is. It's almost Halloween. I know. We are we are uh, bumping up against the holiday right now, and I'm so glad to have you here to help our celebration. Yay! I love being part of the spooky podcast. <laughs> so, uh, why don't we kick off the show the same way I start every show, with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why is horror uh, personal to you? Why do you think it connects with audiences? What's the draw? Blah, blah, blah. But why horror? Why horror? I mean, for me, it was being a little kid. Uh, you know, in my case, you know, mom would go out of town, leave me and my brother. And of course, you know, the older brother's supposed to watch and take care of you. But what that really meant was we're having a party. Right. And what that party meant was there's going to be drinking and horror films and something spooky always. And and the types of movies that I grew up watching was very reminiscent of all like the early trauma stuff, the sorority babes in the slime ball, Bolarama, uh, uh, Night of the Demons, like very fun, full of blood and guts, full of campy stuff. And like you certainly would still have the scares and for me as a as a kid growing up with that there was something just really like exhilarating about sitting on the edge of your seat going oh my god what's going to happen next like is that character going to die oh my god and and also knowing that it's fake so you're not totally terrified um which is probably why I was drawn for all like the campy stuff from the beginning um and, but nowadays like where I'm more interested in a little bit of the psychological horror side of things is I it's a break from the real life horror that we have, which is a lot more terrifying. For sure. You know, America especially, we have (laughs) a lot of horrific shit going on that watching anything with a a ghost or a goblin or a serial killer is going to be like, oh, well, that's like a walk in the park. Right. And, you know, it's something that we routinely return to as a topic with guests, this idea of horror sort of being more about catharsis than fear anymore, because we can kind of place that into what we're watching and let go of maybe what's happening in the real world for a bit. Like, there's a release. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a release, but I think there's also still at least for me anyway, is there's something about these movies that I watched as a little kid and that feeling that you got, like that little bit of anticipation, uh, like the little bit of giddiness when you know that like the killer's like in the house behind, you know, your your heroine, that it still brings me back to that. Like I don't have that same connection or feeling with comedies or dramas, you know? It's just with horror films. There's that kind of on the edge of your seat thing that still brings me back to like the young adolescent idiot that, you know, 
drink beer and smoke pot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what I love about uh, this sort of baptism into the world of horror movies that you talked about is these movies that you and your brother watch, the ones you listed, Sorority Babes and the Slime Bowl Bolorama, the Troma movies, or Night of the Demons, these are kind of more of the edgy, indie, uh, underground, punk rock kind of movies of, of that generation. And so you kind of came into that in a very, you know, a lot of people, oh, my first movie was Halloween or like whatever, which is, of course, is great. Sure. But this is like the real horror underground in a way. Yeah, I kind of went backwards, I think, uh, for whatever reason. I don't know who introduced us to them, but it was like as a, a kid of the 80s, we were watching, you know, very kind of underground, trashy 80s movies, as well as a lot of like the old original Hammer stuff that like would still play on TV. Right. Um, it wasn't until many years later that I was like, oh, mainstream stuff can be cool, too. It was almost like we were a little too punk rock and cool to care about the mainstream things. Like, right. Um, and so, I mean, but there were certainly, there's just tons of them, like, uh, you know, near dark, um, uh, night breed layer of the white worm, like super weird, weird movies that many people didn't catch on to till, you know, later on were the first things that we started with. Which is interesting too, because night breed, uh, specifically of interest to listeners of the show, but I think in general of anyone who feels like an outsider is really a movie all about being, uh, part of an other community and finding your community finding your people yeah and so i've always thought it's a really there's an interesting queer read to it but there's an interesting punk read to it or like just a minority read in general yeah i would say a minority read in general or just you know you as the you know outsider the the nerd who who you know felt ostracized and and picked on and bullied like that would be your place right and that's what i think like horror kind of did in general was like you know now horror is very popular right and it's extremely mainstream but years ago when I started it was all the outsiders like if you didn't fit in somewhere dude you can come here you can be welcomed in my group you could be welcomed in our world because there was nobody weirder than the horror fan yeah right so it was like this kind of awesome gang of misfits that then now have turned into like the cool kids which is is strange like you don't really see that too often it is it's a strange evolution uh and before we get into your origins going from someone watching horror movies to being in them uh, i did want to remark upon the fact that one of the movies you mentioned uh was night of the demons Mm -hmm. and you eventually got to be in the remake of night of the demons which had to be kind of exciting if you watched it as a little kid you have no idea so when I watch some of these films like and and I don't know because I didn't have any performers in my family or anything like that although I did think I was related to John Stamos once and I tried to send him lots of letters and never got a reply (laughs) Um, and that's because my idiot dad and brother told me I was related to John Stamos oh so there's no actual basis of fact no there's no fact at all yeah um, but, uh, we don't have any performers. There was never anyone in our family. Like no one even did theater. Um, so I didn't have that growing up. Like, oh, this is something I can do. However, I remember watching these movies going, oh man, it would be really cool to be that. And not even having an idea of how that would be done, but like, oh wow, I, I really wish I looked like that chick. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or whatever the case may be. So, and that was it with Night of the Demons of the character Angela. I thought this woman embodied sexy, scary, cool, badass, tough as shit. Like that's who I wanted to be as a little kid. And and not necessarily like a demon, right? right but right. just this cool bad woman who could kind of take on anything and took no shit from dudes, right? Right. 
And so to me, th- these were like heroic female characters growing up. And so when I heard they were remaking Night of the Demons, I, I was like, look, I will do anything to be in this movie. I really want to play Angela because I think I- I'm born to play Angela. Um, but I'll do anything. I'll do craft service on your film. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, Adam Girosh and Kevin Tenney and Jay Sanderson, they they basically uh, filled me in a little part where I played uh, Shannon Elizabeth's uh, assistant and uh, got to throw the party with her and steal the money before all shit went down. And I didn't get to turn into a demon. <laughs> well, at least in that particular case. In that in that moment. No. But I love that. Uh, so, yes, you talked a little bit about how there were no performers in your family and you watched these movies and sort of uh, really just worshipped them in a way. Uh, tell me a little bit about that moment when you decided watching these films that it wasn't enough to watch them and you wanted to make them. And especially that journey coming from a family of people who were not in entertainment at all. And you started really young. Yeah, I started really young. And what had happened, and it, there was still not a, like an urge or a need because even though I grew up in New York and in Manhattan, I had no idea how you went about those things. Like in my world, I was like, oh, you must have to be born into these families to get a part. Like I didn't even know like cold auditions happened and how that worked. Um, And so I was reading a newspaper in Manhattan at my school and there was an ad in it for a, a company called Troma. And they were casting for a new movie. And I remember kind of looking at it like, trauma, trauma. I'm like, wait a minute, that's that co- that's the movie that make that's the company that makes all those movies I watched. Like, holy crap. I wonder if I could go. And it was like a really vague ad, like, come down at two o'clock and, you know, bring a headshot. And well, I didn't have a headshot, but I cut school and I went down and it turned out they were uh, casting for a movie called Tromeo and Juliet. And I uh, lied and said I was way older than I was. I think I was 16 years old. I said I was 19. Uh, I told them I knew kung fu and jujitsu, um, and that I was. Uh, I took stunt performing classes somewhere, like circus classes. All of this was a lie, just because <laughs> I was like there, and all of a sudden there's actors waiting in a lobby, and it was like a real thing. And I'm like, oh my god, what, what do I do? Like I'm, I'm like a fraud, right? Like I'm just a kid who watches these movies. Well, my, my lies worked. It turned out I'm very good at that. <laughs> and uh, they uh, ended up giving me a part, um, a small part, as Peter, the bodyguard to the Capulet family. And that was my first film. And it, so it really wasn't a, oh, wow, this is something I have to do. It was like, oh, wow, this is something I can do. Right. And this is how you do it. And so it was almost like, again, like with watching horror films, I went backwards. Like I got my first job and then I was like, holy crap, now I have to go figure out how to do this. Right. And so then I found classes in Manhattan and it was mostly like, I figured, oh, well, acting's just lying and bullshitting. I could do that. I was like, but how do you behave on a set? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the terms they use? And so like, I went and took classes on kind of like set etiquette, like, you know, cause I mean, a layman, how would you know what blocking is or right. how to find your mark? Like you and I would take that very much for granted that, you know, Joe Nobody would be like, huh, find my mark on what? Right. It's true. I mean, I, I my parents uh, still sometimes I'll use terms that like to me, I just use every day that my dad's like, wait, what's that? Or, you know, such and such. And uh, it, it is a whole culture that you have to learn. And I think that when you're inundated with it, you forget that you at some point did have to learn it. Uh, yeah. and, and I'm really, you know, I think it's so cool because here you talk about these cult underground movies that you were obsessed with. And the first movie you go out to be in and get a job in 
becomes a cult classic. I mean, this is a movie that is still celebrated with uh, certain audiences. And um, what a wild, like, movie. And this film, directed by Lloyd Kaufman, creator of The Toxic Avenger, and written by James Gunn, who not only did Slither, but the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Like, what a great origin story. It's amazing. And considering it's also James Gunn's first project as well, like his first feature, you know, and a lot of talented people came out of that film and that kind of group. I mean, it really is like, whoa, how did I get so lucky to sort of just fall into that? And it, it is. It's such pop culture. Like, people love that movie. I mean, it, it was a, a presentation on it at the Museum of Modern Art. Like, I mean, people really think of that movie as high high art for its time. I mean, considering it was just a punk rock version of Romeo and Juliet. Right. Uh, but done so well and so provocative, even, you know, for that time. Um, that Yeah, it's still a trip daily. Like, that. that's how I got <laughs> That's my first gig. <laughs> so two questions about that. One is, is sort of, in my mind, the immediate issue of you cut class, you go and audition for this movie, and you get a, a part. Tell me about going home and saying, hey, family, uh, FYI. Uh, Well, fortunate for me or unfortunate for me, I had a family that I don't think cared enough about my (laughs) (laughs) well-being, like many of us, right? Right. Uh, That they were just like, oh, cool. Great. And I was like, okay, cool. Great. Like, I could just go make a movie. Like, and it was like, oh, that's fantastic. What, what What do you say? What do you do? Like, it wasn't like... A major concern, um, which uh, probably leads to why I, I uh, you know, I am in this business in the first place is because everyone say if you're in entertainment, you're a glutton for punishment or you had a weird fucked up childhood. It's like <laughs> I think that's part of mine. Um, but uh, yeah, like, I, I think they were just it was probably just as weird to them like, oh, that's what she's going to go do. And I um Maybe, and I don't remember it, but maybe it just seemed like I had that kind of path that they weren't really all that shocked. Um, But I I think it was a pretty cool thing once that movie came out. And even before then, for some reason, and maybe it was just because I was such a horror fan at heart, that other horror fans really embraced me. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, she's cute and she's cool and she loves horror movies and now she makes horror movies. That they, they really kind of brought me into that world. And next thing you know, like without an agent, without anything, I was just getting offered, you know, jobs in Ohio and here, come to Florida and make this horror film. And, and you know, going from being a fan to then working and sitting alongside people that you just watched a week ago and going, holy shit, that's so cool. Did you see how Kane Otter did that? Right. And now you're sitting and signing with them is, is a real trip. And with specific regard to Tromeo and Juliet, I don't think that anyone thinks when they do anything as a teenager, it's going to be something that they're going to keep talking about for years and years and years. So tell me just about that. Here's this movie, your first movie that you make when you're 16. Did you ever think that you would be sitting here, not maybe specifically here, but like just in in the world in 2018, still talking about Tromeo and Juliet? I feel like I did. I only because being that it was my first film and it wasn't a zero budget movie I mean like they had a real crew and and you know real stunt performers and a real budget right especially for trauma <laughs> right uh that I was like man this is this is it like this is the uh, gonna be fantastic this is gonna be a huge movie and seeing the love for trauma even after that first year it there, there's something that people, and maybe it's just like part of the childhood, or maybe it's just the the group of people that I hang out with. 
it it brings something back for them. So I kind of always had this feeling like this Tromeo and Juliet's going to be something that's going to be there forever. Um, and and thankfully, it, it has been. Like, it's something I love talking about. I loved my experience making that movie. Uh, it, the movie still holds up to this day. Um, and like I said, the the people that have come out of it, and I mean, in all different facets, like, you know, from production managers down the line all have gone on to some really really big careers oh it's amazing it's it's just a film when you look at the credits a who's who of people who are running around hollywood making big stuff yeah uh and i've discussed trauma off and on throughout the history of dead for filth um but i really am kind of curious since we talk about how horror is a place for outsiders None more prominently than Troma. Troma is a family of outsiders. And I'm wondering, as someone whose origins begin there, if you would mind explaining a little bit to our audience who is not as familiar with what Troma may be, what your definition of, of Troma is. Um, my definition of Troma, well, Troma Films, one of the longest, if not the oldest, truly independent uh, film production company. Right. Um. They forever have made projects that push push boundaries, push social boundaries, political boundaries, and what they were always like to call themselves like equal opportunity offenders, right? But that's only because if you look at, if you go to any convention with Troma or Lloyd Kaufman, the people that surround his booth are are a mashup of everyone we know. Right. There, there's, there's no shade of color of person that's not represented there's no sexual orientation that's not represented there's no nobody is lesser than anyone else Mm -hmm. at trauma and i always thought that was really fantastic like it was not a bunch of just middle-aged white men you know standing around selling movies like it was it was everybody and what i thought was amazing of them as a company was if you made a film for them they not only just took your movie and you know took your money. Now they may do that, but they they also brought you along for the ride. Right. So you were there to promote it. You were there to kind of give the message you wanted to give, which I thought was really pretty fantastic. But they're the, also on the flip side, the king of low brow, gross you out, disgusting, vile humor. Right. You know, which often can be. Uh, mistaken for somebody being mean or not being sensitive enough um but uh i mean for me they were just this crazy punk rock push boundaries provocatively weird production company that allowed you to kind of showcase your art in any way that you wanted to. And looking at your history with the company, you, you began with Tromeo and Juliet, but you did other projects with them and you got to travel to places like you went to Cannes. Yeah, many times. And so it's just really interesting how uh, this company that sort of exists on the fringe of what we consider to be mainstream Hollywood provides so many opportunities for people who maybe would never get them. The, mm-hmm. uh, the chance to make a movie, the chance to go to a major film market or festival and represent your most authentic and weirdest self if you so want to. Uh, you know, I have personal history with trauma as well, and that's one of the ways that you and I intersected in the past. But I think that... Uh, I always admired uh, them because it felt like everyone belonged. I remember, uh, and I talked about this when the filmmaker Philip Ford was on uh, Dead for Filth a, a couple months ago, that when I saw Vegas in Space, which is a trauma distributed film on late night cable on USA Up All Night, <laughs> it's a movie full of drag queens. Who's putting drag queens on television in 1992? It wasn't happening. But trauma did. And so for 
anybody who existed on the outside, not only did they make the movies that we could have, but they also made you feel like, I can make these too. And that's so important. Oh, yeah. No, they, if I, I really, when people ask me and they ask me all the time, they're like, oh, wow, Tiffany, because I, I go around a lot of the conventions just like you do. And, you right. know, you sign autographs and go to film festivals. And people are like, oh, but you're so nice. And, and you always love meeting the fans. And they're like, well, yes, in deep in my soul, that's just me. Like, I, right. I think our job is awesome. And I, I don't think there's any place for me to be sitting there going I'm tired or oh anyone who complains about this should be suspect yeah Yeah. it's not okay but I gotta say that trauma and traveling around with them at such a young age and basically coming from the school of trauma it's like you know the trauma cult right um teaches you to embrace it all and you know if you have ever been a fan and you've walked up to the table at trauma you know you're greeted with oh Michael Verratti, everybody, and lots of applauses and pictures, and they make you feel like you are the king. And there's no other place, production company for certain, that will do that for you. It is such an ego boost, and it doesn't matter if you made a movie that cost $2 or $2 million, you're treated exactly the same. Right, and I've always admired that. Uh, so let's talk about that transition. You you get to work with this fabulously inclusive family uh, headed by this wacky and magical man. Uh, you do a multitude of projects with trauma. And then, as you said, you start learning about the etiquette of set, the, the terminology of making movies, and you eventually do start branching out into non-trauma movies, into bigger projects and different projects. Tell me a little bit about that, that trajectory out of the world of trauma into other stuff. Um, You know, I mean, it was certainly... You know, every every production's different, but as you know, like working in genre movies, it tends to be a lot, uh, uh, almost like an intimate family affair, right? right? Especially when you're working with lower budgets. So a lot of those aspects were the same. There were a few differences where I'm like, went from a world where, you know, Lloyd Kaufman was everything and our king and he's so great to then sometimes you run into filmmakers that go, wait a minute, trauma, <laughs> I haven't gotten my check from them. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, wait a second, not everybody loves them as much as I do. Um, but uh, it, what I found in genre filmmaking especially was it, it really is all the same. It's mostly people that are just like us, you know, right. often the outsiders making them, often somebody who, you know, maybe was a bit of a loner. Like it really wasn't ever like the, the strapping jock that was directing your horror film, you right. know? It was always a somewhat of like a nerdy dude who you're like, guess what? We're all the same. And then you're you're putting all your heart into this like kind of wacky, crazy movie, whether it be campy and fun or super scary or a complete slasher flick. Um, so, so that was an easy transition. Right. Um, and, you know, at the time, not a lot of people were making these movies, even though I made a lot of horror films, like in the 90s, like... There wasn't what there is now. Right. There was sort of a lull after the 80s, like a horror backlash. And then it took until like the the pivotal moment of Scream to make people want to kind of look at it again. Come back. But yeah. there was that horror underground that kept it alive in the in-between time. Sure. And you were very prominently featured in a lot of those movies. So uh, over time, you know, from Tromeo and Juliet to today, you just racked up credit after credit in all of these f- films ranging across the board. Uh and as I said at the top of the show, 130 plus movies. Yeah, but only about 
20 of those are any good and only about seven of those do I actually love. <laughs> so Okay, but so here's the question. Um, when you are in that many projects, uh, are there some that you feel like need a new set of eyes or like didn't get the attention they deserved? Or are there any personal film projects that you love that you don't get asked about as much as others? Uh, absolutely. And it, what's ironic, like we, we were just talking about, there was an article that was written just recently um, that I know we were going to talk about that. It's yeah. the 40 uh, horror women in the last 40 years or something like that. Right. This article was uh, published by Entertainment Tonight and Tiffany uh, was listed alongside many uh Very amazingly famous horror actresses. Yeah. Um, But the credits that were listed for me were a little like, huh? Like, because there were clearly not any of the more well-known ones or certainly not my all-time favorites. Right. Um, But And that's kind of a bit of the beauty of this genre is because, like, for instance, I was, uh, you know, at a convention this past weekend and somebody came up with a photograph from a movie and I was like, God, oh, God, that was a terrible film. They're like, are you kidding that's why I started to love horror films. Like I saw this for the first time. I rented it at Blockbuster. And and then you'll get the next person who walks up and discusses it with that fan. And they're going, wow, you love that? Oh, I love this. Oh, I hated that movie. Right. And they're all so different. And it's I've, you don't see that too often where you have one genre, but that has so many different layers. Like the people that love the camp, the people that love the slasher fix, the people that love the torture porn. You know what I mean? Like people love just serious ghost movies. Right. Like it's so, so different. Um. So um, I forget our original question. What was it? <laughs> oh, just projects that you. Oh, projects. Are- yeah, projects that I loved. Like, all right, I loved a movie I did called Bonnie and Clyde vs. Dracula. Oh my god, I love that one too. Honestly, it's yeah. a really fun movie, and not just the fact that I love the funness of the film, and that's just a kind of like weird mashup. I loved my performance in it. So often as an actor, I'm looking at it two different ways. Like I'm looking at it as an actor and a horror fan. Like I'm like, ooh, horror fans would like this if they got a chance to see this. But, oh, I'd really like horror directors and friends to see this because I really like my performance. Right. Um, and so that one was one I thought just really didn't get as much legs. And, and that was sort of at the time it came out was in a bit of the decline of the blockbusters and Hollywood videos. And so there really was this place of limbo for these straight to DVD horror films right. where they always had a home before. Like at any time I could go to the horror section at Blockbuster and find 12 or 13 of my movies. There was only a couple left and they were only buying like sprinkled horror selections. So um, so that one, uh, The Hazing, a lot of my horror fans know, but I love, love, love it. Um, the Frankenstein Syndrome was a very serious horror film that I did that was very different than my typical, like, I'm running through the woods naked. <laughs> you know, it was a, I played a molecular biologist. Um, and that was one I really wanted people to see because it was so different. Right. So that's generally my stuff is like, like, I, I want people to see the, the different stuff that I can do, not just the same, you know. Uh, unfortunately for most things, um, you know, often the movie that has the biggest PR budget isn't necessarily the best movie. Sure. You know, so I find these films I've done that I'm not a really big fan of, but yet all of a sudden have this great outreach and they get a great sci-fi release and you're like, that one? (laughs) Do you find too, because you've been in such a wide range of projects that when someone comes up to you and recognizes you for a specific movie, you can be like, oh, you're this age or you're this person or you're from here like I've I've talked to different people who have like kind of more than one definitive role and they're like oh well 
these these people tend to I, like moms like this movie or vice versa, you know. Sure. I mean, you definitely I mean, and you could tell now lately, like I can tell by a lot of their tattoos, like like what type of movies do you have on you? Like, is it just The Exorcist and Jaws? Right. Or do you have the obscure stuff? You know, like, do you have Linnea Quigley with the lipstick all over her face? Right. right. Or going into her breasts, I guess. <laughs> um you know, and those I'm like, oh, so he's going to be into this movie, you know, or right. he's going to be a fan of the violent kind versus the Frankenstein syndrome. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I can I can see that age range wise. I mean, you know, my I have, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, but what I've noticed is my newer fans are like kind of more into like the campier mainstream stuff like Sharknado. Yeah, and you were in Sharknado too, mm-hmm. which was a hugely watched film, and I'm sure that that like just brought a whole new group of people to you. Oh, it brought families, and I I've always wanted to reach into that fan base because it's like generally what I had in the past was you know, twenty you know fifteen to thirty five year old. It started with men; it was mostly men, but now thankfully a lot of women started watching horror films and mm-hmm. so it's kind of a real big big mashup but I never really had any movies that you know the younger kids or you know families and I haven't had the big big mainstream release to kind of hit everybody right so I was super excited when I got Sharknado and oddly it was a in a weird way I got it uh Courtney Baxter uh, starred as the daughter in the film and she was there shooting in New York and her mother was on set and she goes, oh, you know, a really good friend of our family's, you know, makes a lot of horror movies. You know, Tiffany Shepis and, you know, David Latt said, yeah, yeah, we know Tiffany. And she goes, well, she's here in New York. She should be in this. And he's like, she's here. Debbie Baxter called me that day, said, get your ass to New York. <laughs> and I was like, that's a good friend. That's um, a great friend. Yeah. yeah. So uh, needless to say, I, I kind of bullied my way into Sharknado 2 because one, it's it's was shot in Manhattan. Right. One. Like, how do you not want to be in a pop culture phenomenon shot in New York City? And if I recall, your scenes are like prominently around the Statue of Liberty. We shot at the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. We shot on the ferry. It was unbelievable. Like, I, I, I kid you not. I mean, my, my daughter will tell you when I got the call, like finally from David Latt, like, yes, you know, we want you in this. Like, I actually did like a really weird 80s knee slide with like the devil horns in my hand across an ice cream shop. And my kid was like, what are you doing? I'm like, Sharknado too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we talk about how you have been in a wide range of movies. And with regard to this Entertainment Tonight article that came out that listed you amongst uh, all of these prominent women in horror, there is a term that frequently gets utilized when discussing women who have frequently acted in genre, and that is Scream Queen. And there's a lot of kind of baggage with that terminology, uh, both in the positive and negative for people. And as someone who has had this term applied to them over the course of your career, I thought it would be a really interesting discussion to dig into a little bit because it's not a phrase that everybody likes. No, it's not. And here, for me, when I started making these movies and once I realized people that made horror films went to conventions... And I got invited to a Fangoria convention and a Chiller Theater convention. And there I am sitting alongside the likes of Brink Stevens and Linnea Quigley and uh, Jewel Shepard and Julie Strain. Like these really prominent 80s fixtures, right? Right. 
And I remember looking at them like, man, these women, they're so gracious and they're so excited to be here and they're so sexy and fierce and badass and excited to meet their fans. Like, I want to be just like these women. Right. And to me, they were the they were the ultimate scream queens. Like in my head, it was women that made a lot of horror movies or or women that made at least one very prominent horror film, mm-hmm. but that also were a fixture in the scene. Like, not just kind of a fly-by-night, you were in and out. Like, the kind of around, like, you know, the embodiment of the genre. Right. And I was like, man, I'd love to be that. I, I, kind of like one of those things, like, not knowing how to act. Like, uh, how do you become a scream queen, right? Well, Jules Shepard wrote an article for uh, Premiere Magazine. It was New York Magazine. And she said something like, you know, new scream queen on the block, Tiffany Shepis. And it was literally like you just see my eyes like light up with little pumpkins like, oh, I've made it. <laughs> like somebody called me a scream queen. And I couldn't have been more thrilled because to me, I had thought like this is something that should be bestowed to you by other scream queens or or the fans. Like right. you couldn't just call yourself like that. Now, fast forward 20 years and, you know, with the influx of conventions and film festivals every weekend and horror being such a, a, a mainstream thing, you know, you find people that set up at a convention with their own table and they've shot one movie in their backyard and they have a calendar that says Scream Queen, Jessica, whomever, right? Or, right. And they're self-proclaimed. That kind of puts a little bit of a damper on a title, right? Like right. a title that like in my head was like you had to have had this body of work. Like you had to have screamed in at least a dozen horror films. You have to embrace the genre, but now you can just call yourself that. Right. Like that's kind of weird. Like that would be just like I've made some action films. Now I'm going to call myself Super Kung Fu Star. Like, hmm. no, no, you have right. to like become it- a Kung Fu Star. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess, on the fence about it. Like, part of me thinks it's still really, really awesome, and right. the other part thinks it's somehow a little bit overused. Well, I think, too, there is sort of this idea, and I know that uh, other other performers in the space have sort of talked about how, while it initially had some prestige to it, or there, it was well-intentioned, there was sort of a shift, as you said, when it became overused, and it started to take away from the actual performance. Like, you're not an actor, you're a scream queen. Yeah. And there's there's something, I think, in a way, and maybe, maybe you, I'm wrong, but there's like a weird inherent misogyny to it. It's like, because we don't do that to men in horror. No. It's like, if a man's in a horror movie, he's an actor. But like, if a woman is in a horror movie and she's in enough horror movies, she's a scream queen. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where I think people find it problematic a little bit. Too. And and I can 100% agree with that. Yeah. And I only, that's why I was saying it's changed a bit 20 years later because when I first started out, I was happy if you called me anything, right? <laughs> right? Like you gave me a title. This is fantastic. Right. But then as I have worked for so many years and worked pretty damn hard at, trying to I mean certainly trust me I know that not all my projects are great but I always try to give something back to the fans that watch it I always try to to give 110 percent that I'm like well if this is a title that's going to sort of fuck me later you know and which it has because I've I've heard I actually heard it from someone I ended up marrying the first reaction when it was actually my, my husband, Sean, directed a movie called The Frankenstein Syndrome, which I ended up being in. But his first reaction when he was asked to use me by the producers was, 
well, I don't want to use a scream queen. Wow. And that was without him really ever seeing any of my stuff. Like he had right. never watched anything. He just knew the term. He knew my image and it was a deterrent. And that, that sucks. Right. You know? And so it's almost like, you know, you're, you're too famous with a term, but you're not famous enough to right. not have it. And that has happened to me a few times at conventions as well, where it's like they'll, we'll do a panel and it'll be actors that have done, you know, just the same type of work that I have. But it's like, and actor so-and-so, actor so-and-so, scream queen Tiffany Shepis. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm still an actor. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's just a strange label that I can see is both beneficial and not at the same time. That's interesting that it's, uh, it actually has served as a negative in those cases. Uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of, of, of discussion around it, and I've read a lot of essays around it, and so I just sort of wanted to get your, your thoughts. I don't know. But, I'm, I'm really torn on it as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm very 50-50 on how I feel because on one side, like I said, I'm very, very grateful to the genre. I'm, right. I, I mean, I live and breathe horror movies, and I've worked at this for so long, and I've embraced that title. Anything people want to tell me, like if they want to write about me in articles and say right. Scream Queen Tiffany Shepis, how awesome, how lucky am I am that this is my job. Right. On the flip side, I'm like, well, you know, maybe maybe it's because I'm older now and I'm not just playing like the babe running through the woods, tripping and falling and getting killed that it's like, OK, now it's time to look at me doing other stuff. Right. And I feel like it's a little bit hard for people to go. But oh, but scream queens only run and die. Right. But then how do you people call Jamie Lee a scream queen? Right. She didn't run and die. She's frequently listed as <laughs> as the Scream Queen. The Scream Queen, but also the final girl. So right. if th there's a, a bit of a, I don't know. I mean, I guess we'd have to figure out who invented the term to ask them, what is the real definition? <laughs> right. Now, we, we talk about the labels and sort of the inherent patriarchy, uh, which extends to entertainment in general, not necessarily just horror. But do you find uh, there have been challenges over your career just being a woman working in the industry? I think there's challenges being people working in the industry. This right. industry sucks. It's hard. You're rejected consistently. Uh, you deal with people judging you solely on how you look. Right. That's a whole weird world, you know, to be in, even though it's like, but I'm not even supposed to be pretty in this movie. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> but you have to be pretty enough for us to make you ugly. Um, you know, all that's weird. The, the, I, I mean, I have been fortunate enough in the industry side where I've only ever dealt with like really one or two real, real pieces of scum and, uh, you know, like casting couch ish situations that you're like, whoa, really? This happened. Right. And like so to me, thank God I haven't had it so many times that it just became, oh, well, this is par for the course. It was really shocking. Like, right. I thought this was just in TV. <laughs> like um, I I find real life people to be just as as bad and, and hard on women and our generation especially is has been put through the ringer you know and maybe that's in a way why we do like horror movies bringing it back to the full circle idea of we can kind of get out our aggression on screen yeah can go and kill the weird bad guy pedophile <laughs> right <laughs> um so i want to shift gears a little bit speaking of things that we see on screen because of the nature of the show as I mentioned uh, it, as I mentioned at the top of every episode we are all about the intersection of queer identity and horror and I have waited 53 episodes to talk about this particular topic <gasps> and I waited to have you on because I knew of all the guests you have a good story <laughs> related around this uh, and it is about the topic of queer baiting 
Dun, dun, dun. And uh, I mean, you, and listeners may wonder of all the queer creators that I've had on the show and TV people, you know, why specifically Tiffany Shepis do I want to discuss queer baiting with? And it's because we actually have like a personal story about we had a personal i think like over the course of a couple phone calls three hour long conversation (laughs) of michael explaining to me what queer baiting was and how prevalent it is in modern television movies like something that really blew my mind and it's funny because i distinctly remember we were having lunch at a california pizza kitchen (laughs) when i had mentioned uh the uh i think i was talking about a comic-con panel where they were asking about queer baiting and i was just talking about it in general and you're like what's queer baiting (laughs) and so then i you know quickly did a definition and you know it's funny i didn't think it would be a thing and then i'm driving home from lunch and tiffany calls and she's like wait, I was watching this show three nights ago and they did this thing where it was like the guys lingered on each other a little too long. Is that this? And then you were just sort of obsessed with I, the idea. I really did. I became very obsessed. Like every TV show, every commercial I watched and like, wait a second, over that Ego commercial, the guy was lingering with his eyes a little long at the cafe before the lady came in with the Egos, but then he looked back at the guy. Is that queer baiting? <laughs> and the answer is probably yes. Probably. Because I think that, you know, it's we we talk about um, how we live in a world of of cinema that celebrates otherness and outsiders, but like mainstream has not yet caught up. And the thing that's interesting to me about queer baiting is this notion that they want our money, but they don't want to represent us. So they they weirdly put things in that kind of get you to the gate and then leave you there. Can you like explain to me now for your listeners because there are lots of people out there that have really no idea like. Give can you give me a, a like the best example? Yeah, I mean there has been a long slew. I think we're getting better now. There are out queer characters on television now, but uh, for a long time there would be circumstances on TV. Uh, it's especially prevalent in TV where if they know that there is like a homoerotic interest in a show, they will play with that. Uh, prominent examples would be something like Supernatural, where they're like, well, we know the uh, the fans are like into the idea of these two cute guys. So we'll like dangle that, even though in the show they're brothers, which makes it really weird. But then they'll like dangle an idea like, here's a fan fiction episode where like they're looking at each other a little too or much. Or Xena. Xena, definitely. Xena never quite pushed us into the realm where she was like a full out lesbian unless I mean maybe it happened later in the seasons but I don't think so I don't think so but they the idea was there and they would toy with it and they would dangle that carrot and they would never give it to us pay it off yeah Yeah. and I think it's really interesting because I think that happens with a lot of underrepresented communities where they give you just enough where they can be like well but they never fully give it to you hmm yeah, it was it was really interesting that conversation because it was something that I I truly never uh, you know as a as a heterosexual female I right. it never even occurred to me. However, once we talked about it, I saw it in so many shows and so many things and I was like this is bonkers right. that somebody would do that purposely. Like well, and it's in a weird way and in a gross way it makes sense because when you make something for mainstream television, you're making it for the whole country. Mm-hmm. And they have this notion that in the middle of the country they do not want to engage with LGBTQ oriented content. So mm-hmm. we can't. We clearly cannot put that in there. Like we're going to insult Aunt Helen. Uh <laughs> 
But who has Aunt Helen, who's obviously a secret lesbian? Yeah, of yeah. course. Um, you know, she she is on her way to a Slater Kenny concert right now. Uh, but then, who has the most disposable income right now? Queer people, because we're not having kids for a while. We couldn't even get married, so it's just like <laughs> no bill. Yeah. So it was sort of like they wanted our money, but they didn't want to represent us, and it became a real prominent thing. And there are a lot of articles out there that uh, really dig into it. Uh, And uh, it's just so, I wanted to bring it up while you were here only because you were so fascinated by it. It was just something I'd never heard of. And it wasn't until we spoke about it that like retroactively in my brain, I'm like, oh my God, that's what they did in that movie. Or whoa, that's crazy. I always thought that character really was gay, but they never, at the end he's marrying the chick. Like what the heck? Like, it, it, it really just it was something that I was like, that's kind of a scandalous Hollywood secret. It really sort of is. And it's funny, too, because um, even when there is outwardly queer content, occasionally the press around it will go to great lengths to ignore to, it. To ignore that part. For example, I just hosted a event screening of Jennifer's Body for Outfest. And um, I referenced in my introduction that I had read an article recently that said that the film had lesbian undertones. (laughs) Amanda Seyfried and Megan Fox make out in the movie. Like, that's not an undertone. I don't know, like, what you're doing with your friends, but, like... that's that's very, very overtone. (laughs) Yeah. it's And to me, like, I've read Diablo's script, and it is very much implied that there is a lesbian attraction or a bisexual attraction between them. And it's it's so strange when they're like, well... Like, why would you just ignore that? Like, that makes... That's such bad reporting. Well, it's bad reporting, but it's also just, like, bad curation and the idea that they want to titillate and and scandalize, but they don't want to own it. Uh-huh. And I don't know, like, you've been in the industry a long time. Do you think there – is there a reason for that? Just, like, your – I mean – You got me. I, I think it's so bizarre. Like, right. for – like, I just don't see who it benefits and why. I right. mean, we, we all – I, I don't know. I, maybe I just I can't because I'm not like a, a weirdo that like I want to have every person represented in our movies right. and in our TV shows. And I want for, you know, the like one of my daughter's friends at school, like, you know, young boy who just realized that that he likes boys. I want him to have TV shows where he can watch people that are just like him. Right. You know, I want my daughter or my son, if they were, you know, whatever they're into and their attraction, I want them to be able to find a place that isn't just mom telling them, I love you. Like, that they can go, oh, wow, there's people like me. Well, I think it actually goes even beyond, like, the LGBTQ discussion to, like, the wider sense of entertainment that exists in the world. Mm -hmm. Because you know as well as I do, like, for how long did Hollywood resist making a big budget action movie starring a woman. Yeah. They always had an excuse. Well, we made Catwoman and it didn't work. Sure. And so then for 10 years, we couldn't get one because one movie failed. But meanwhile, if you held male-driven action movies to the same standard, if one superhero movie determines the fate of all of them, we would have never had... There'd be no Iron Man, no (laughs) anything. And so I think it gets very frustrating that they want to always take us to the gate and then make us fight so hard to get it, when in fact there's a lot of mediocre shit that's made time and time again. Sure. And artists 
who exist across the spectrum. We need more female filmmakers. We need more queer filmmakers. We need more filmmakers of color. Uh, but it's sort of like, I always feel like anxiety for those people. Like I remember thinking when Black Panther was coming out, how stressful it must be to be Ryan Coogler, to know that like all of these crusty white men across studios are, judging. are like, well, if this movie doesn't work, mm-hmm. no more black superheroes, which they would never do anywhere else. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you're definitely held to a different, like. Like I, I read something when, gosh, what uh, something about like, you know, well, if if this woman, you know, making a horror film, and you know, if she can do it, and it was like, why couldn't she? she? Yeah, why, you know, you artists I, are artists. You exactly. Know? You and I have both worked with really great female directors. Absolutely. And I never think of, like it, like she directs different than a man. <laughs> Usually better, like honestly. Like it just—it doesn't occur to me yeah. that right. like someone female, male, a, a different color, like would do something differently than somebody else. But it—it it does suck that any minority or, or you know a female director would be held to a different standard than right. anybody else, or that you would have to say, well, she, you know, for a woman, she did great. It's oh, like, what year are we so in? So appalling. Well, I mean, I even remember thinking when the trades came out, when Wonder Woman came out, how they acted like Warner Brothers gives Patty Jenkins this movie and they're taking a gamble. That was the phrase used in, <laughs> wow. in, in the trades. They're like taking a gamble on Pat- Patty Jenkins to direct this big superhero movie. Patty Jenkins directed an $8 million movie that starred Charlize Theron that won an Oscar. How's that taking How's a, a gamble? gamble? It's just, you know, I feel like, I think that you know, this is a far afield of, of the initial discussion, but that's what I love about this show, is it really is all about this uphill climb that anybody who doesn't represent the mainstream has to go through to make it in entertainment. And so that's when you said earlier, this industry is always a fight. And it can be very disappointing. That's what I think about when I think about. Sure. I would imagine like it's but the only thing I could say on like the bright side of it is like where we've been politically and and as a country like the last few years has really made a shift toward entertainment side where people are going, well, wait a second. We don't want to be like those middle-aged, white, racist weirdos. Like, we need to change here. And so it's almost like you have to have, like, the absolute horriblest, awfulest shit happen in order to see, like, a big, fast change. And, you know, and that that was, like, the whole thing with, like, all of the Me Too. It's like, you know, everything coming all at once. You need that to happen to have something happen. Yes. You know, one or two people doesn't make a change. 500 does 5,000 even better right you know and so I think we are on the right track for to see things move obviously as a woman as as you being a, a gay male we're not seeing them fast enough sure but there's progression there's progression that is true and yes in terms of art please go see more female-centric movies see more queer-centric movies sure. see more movies curated uh, and made by people of color uh, just intake views different than yours uh and what a great transition. Speaking of queer movies and projects, uh, Tiffany and I actually got to work together recently. Uh, we made a short that I wrote and directed that Tiffany's in called He Drinks. We did. Uh, which premiered at Outfest and has been going around. She plays a therapist. And Michael directed it, and I couldn't have been more impressed. I, I'm really serious. Like, I'm going to tell you now on your podcast. Oh, but. You. 
I really couldn't have been more impressed with how you handled your crew and your set and your excitement. And it maybe it comes a little bit from like the trauma cult that we come from. Yeah. The excitement to make everyone feel in- inclusive and and that every piece of the puzzle needs to belong. But that's really how you made your crew and cast feel. It was like that if one of us was gone, the whole thing would fall apart. Well, and thank you so much. I believe that. Like we could have made a short. But the short we made couldn't have been done if else if if I didn't have those specific people there. Yeah, it, it that to me was, is the magic of making movies, and you know it was it was such a wonderful experience. Uh, we've done projects together in the past, but never one that I, I was able to direct you in. So I know, and you wrote it, and I I play a a, a therapist to two gentlemen that are having a, a tough time emotionally, like all relationships do at some point in time. Right, and uh, they're. There is a weird twist, which, you know, there wouldn't be one if Michael and I both didn't do horror. <laughs> There's a, a horrific twist. Um, but uh, it, it was super cool. It was super cool to have a movie at Outfest, like, kind of like, whoa, wait, you got into where? Um, and, you know, it continues to play places. Like, it's been all around. It's uh, played in the UK. It's played at a number of uh, LGBTQ festivals and horror festivals around. I'm very honored uh, that it keeps rolling out. And uh, I was just up in San Francisco representing it recently. And it was just such a joy, like, after all of uh, this time knowing you that we got to make this together. So, of course, having you on, uh, I couldn't not bring it up. Also, what's really cool about you being on the show this week is that on October 26th, which is later this week, uh, he drinks drops on the Reverie streaming platform. So if you're listening, as soon as you're done, you can go watch Tiffany Be Amazing. Holy crap. That's super cool. October 26th. Yeah. Ah, yay. That's I, This is an exciting week for me because on October 27th, Killer Kate comes out. My new movie. Tell me about Killer Kate. <laughs> Killer Kate, it's uh, Kate and her dumb friends are going to have a bachelorette party at a cabin. They uh, rent it through a L.A. kind of Airbnb type of app. And guess what? There's some bad guys that don't want them to have a good time. And I am part of the bad guys. Oh, I like a bad guy situation. Yeah, I get to swing around an axe and I try to kill Kate. Um, that bitch is she's, she's tricky. <laughs> she's not going down. She's not going down fast. Um, <laughs> but it, it is it's playing theatrically in L.A. for I think like a week or two. And it's oh, uh, going to be on all streaming platforms. So it's called Killer Kate. It's a lot of fun. So you can have like a Tiffany double feature with He Drinks and Killer Kate. I love that. Yeah, and in fact, just like make it make it a Shepis marathon, a Shepis Palooza, line up some stuff. Just keep going. Well, so this begs the question before we start wrapping up the show. Uh, you have played many different kinds of roles uh, in many different kinds of movies. Is there something that you haven't got a chance to do yet that you've always wanted to? I, I mean, yeah, there's lots that I haven't gotten to do, like you know, being a hit movie or hit TV show. <laughs> Hello, haunting of Hill House. I'm talking to you. Um, the, you know, I, I've always said I've wanted to just do stuff that'll showcase what I can do. Right. Um, more dramatic stuff. Uh, I always like I, I tell everyone like I just want to play like an alcoholic mom because you know what? Generally, those are these really dramatic, layered, fucked right. up characters. Um, I did get to sort of play that in a new movie called uh, Starlight, which was made by the guys who did uh, The Violent Kind and The Night Watchman. And and apparently my stuff is good, but I, I don't think I went. I went a little bit more likable than the unlikable 
angry mom alcoholic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, maybe I still have that to fulfill in my career. Um, just more dramatic stuff. Like it used to be, oh man, I only want to play Angela and I the demons. And oh, I want to play the Mindy Clark character in Return of the Living Dead 3. And right. now I'm like, I want to play the moms. I want to play the the angry divorcee. I want to play the the struggling single chick in her 30s. Like, I, I want to play a bit of everything. Like, although I'm a the mom of a teenage girl, no one ever casts me as that. Right. And I'm like, but I have a real life one. Look. <laughs> like, <laughs> look, here, there she is. It's uh, true. I have artwork of hers on my fridge. You do. Hi, Mia. Mia. <laughs> um, but no one ever cast me as that, and yet right. I'm a little too old to play the you know the the college kid, even though I can still pretend. <laughs> Delta Delta die. Oh my god, I love Delta Delta die. <laughs> um, you know, it just occurred to me while you were talking, uh, as we were transitioning out of He Drinks, that I mentioned something at the top of the show, and so I have to bring it back a little briefly because after we shot He Drinks, our two leads, uh, Francisco and Clint, uh, they were looking up some of your your back catalog of work, and they this I think will be very uh, relevant to my listeners because they had the gayest of gasps when they discovered this. Oh no! And um, I. Uh, I think also you are the only guest in the history of Dead for Filth who has ever worked in a project with Beyonce. <gasps> yes, I did. I worked with when she was still Destiny's Child. Yeah. Uh, on a music, it, it was back like when I, for whatever reason, was hired constantly to be like the one dancing girl in every music video. Right. Um, Cause I could kind of dance a little bit. Anyway, <laughs> never good enough to like you know do anything beyond that. Right. Uh, but uh, I was I was hired uh, for a song they did called "Nasty Girl," and it was a terrible, horrible song. And but the video it starts off with me walking down the street with like like g-string coming out of my pants and this blonde wig and wearing like a little bra and a big fur coat and i'm in these giant heels and as i'm looking like super fucking fly and i think i'm awesome i trip and fall in front of all these dudes you're the nasty girl i'm the nasty girl yeah and uh and then by the end destiny's child just happens to have a nasty zapper so they put all the girls in a machine and they become classy women <laughs> it's <just so> ridiculous <laughs> i love that but uh, i remember like destiny Chow was was big then but not obviously yeah like she's the queen of the world she's now. queen of the world now. Yeah, yeah but i remembered like that was like a moment of a bit of starstruck for me as well like whoa like this is a big video like these are huge people and i remember pink had just come on the scene then and uh beyonce was like oh my god you remind us of our friend pink and i was like this fuck's pink. <laughs> then looking her up like, a couple days later and like she had just like, you know, got to the top of the charts with her new single. And I was like, damn, these people are famous. But beyond her, I also worked with Britney Spears. I was going to ask two videos with Britney Spears. I did. I did two videos as her stand in and her double. Um, and uh, I got I got fired when I chopped all my hair off, which was a hilarious day. I got to set and they're like, oh, you got a haircut. You look great. You're fired. <laughs> oh, my God. Which video was that? Uh, strong enough. And the other one was Lucky. Right. Now, in Lucky, you are like her when she's looking at herself but turned away. Exactly. That's that, Which I think is amazing because the whole <laughs> video is her like watching herself. But obviously... 
Yes. Brittany is not a clone. Nope, so, it yeah. was me. And um, they they did a whole like making the video and I actually just found it just the other day, like a DVD copy of it. And so you could see me in the background, <laughs> like looking 19 and bored, like chewing my gum like a horse, like just not giving a shit. <laughs> I'm like, little did you know, Britney Spears would be Britney Spears. I would have tried a lot harder to be better friends with her. I love that. So from from uh, Britney Spears to Killer Kate and everything in between, uh, <laughs> what's coming up next? What what uh, beyond Killer Kate? Is there anything you can tell us about? Um, actually, in a couple weeks, I have a, a a movie that I did that's a non horror film. Uh, that's coming out theatrically in all of Texas and then coming to Los Angeles and a few kind of theaters sprinkled throughout. And it's called Texas Cotton. And Texas Cotton is a weird sort of a whodunit kind of mystery. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not a horror film, but yet it's starring a bunch of horror actors. So I'm in it playing a deputy, uh, George Hardy of Troll 2 fame. Wow. You don't pay us on hospitality, that guy. I've always wanted that embroidered on a pillow, honestly. I will get it done for you. I will (laughs) learn to embroider just for that. It's it's on audio now, so it's forever. You guys hear this. Now someone teach me how to embroider. Um, And uh, Lou Temple. And it's it's this weird, beautifully shot kind of mystery. And uh, it, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, playing the Austin Film Festival this weekend. And then we'll do a little theatrical run and then you'll be able to find it on VOD and everywhere else. But pretty excited about that. And uh, I don't know, gearing up for my next Michael Verratti movie. Well, I mean, I... <laughs> I'm announcing it here. Uh, you, ca- you can. <laughs> there is maybe something coming. I can't reveal much beyond this, but I mean, I there's there's really the only two people left on earth I want to work with. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot. There's others. You know, I'd like to work with the right. Haunting of Hill House guy or Eli Roth, Michael Verratti, Ben Bauer. You know, there's just like the list goes on and on. But you guys are my top four. I'll take I'm sure uh, that uh, Mike Flanagan, Eli Roth and my dear friend Ben Bauer are all ready to go. <laughs> ready so, to go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so no, there will definitely be more collaboration between us. I, I There's a few uh, scripts sitting on my computer just waiting. Just waiting to hit print and send. Yeah, waiting to hit print and send. Uh, what have you been watching lately that you love, that inspires you? Obviously, you've mentioned The Haunting of Hill House. I've, yeah, I've mentioned that enough times that uh, it, they, they know I'm into it, just like the rest of the world. Um I watched a couple episodes with Mia of, I guess it would be considered like teen horror, is that Light as a Feather. Oh, on Hulu. Yeah. I have not watched it yet, but I've heard good things. You know, I I went into it with her going, all right, it's going to be some kind of teeny bopper light horror but it's it's really well done it's like kind of cool that you're like oh snap like these actors are really good um you know it has a very final destination sort of feel um so i I highly recommend it like i i think it's a lot of fun um of course we watch the mayans in our house um so if anyone's into you know hot motorcycle guys it's where you turn to never mad at it never mad at it um, you know, those are the things we're watching right now. I haven't seen the new Halloween yet, but that that will be on my list for this week. Um, yeah. Well, speaking of Halloween, since we have you in the month of October, one thing we ask every guest in the month of October is, what are you doing for Halloween and what are your Halloween traditions, if any? Um, 
Well, since we have two annoying, horrible children, uh, our Halloweens get eaten up by doing annoying Halloween children things like right. trick-or-treating. But it is kind of awesome because you can just kind of fill up a goblet with wine and <laughs> walk, walk while they, you know, get candy with razor blades in it. Um, but uh, so, you know, our son has changed his costume three times and we were really mad at it originally. And then it got to the point where it was like, why are we angry at this? His mom and dad make horror films for a living we're both obsessed with horror films and oh our our kid wants to wear nine different costumes with different makeup and effects like uh (laughs) yeah i still changed my costume three times like i will wear like four costumes over the course of this season you have changed your outfit five times during this interview (laughs) well i mean it's just really the way when you uh are a diva (laughs) that's right (laughs) um yeah so our son the diva um now he's gonna be like the scream mask and he's actually made his own what are they called scythes sits sits uh, Scythe, yeah, Scythe. Yeah. he's made his own. He's five oh. years old. It's kind of cool. Um, he was a devil the other day and then a ninja. So great. We'll see what happens next. Mia is going to be some grapes because that's what teenagers do. They mock, you know, the whole holiday. She's like, I'm going to be grapes. Ugh. Which is funny, too, when you talk about trick or treating and your kids. Uh, I had mentioned you're in a segment of Tales of Halloween. Mm-hmm. And, uh, not only do I recommend the whole anthology as part of your Halloween viewing this season, but the segment that Tiffany is in, uh, coincidentally, also features her daughter as a murderous trick-or-treater. Yes. And it's really funny to just like have that mental image in my brain as they are actually preparing to go trick-or-treating. <laughs> yeah. But I wish she was as cool as the little witch that goes up to the door and stabs Trent Haga. She's just going to be grapes. Um. <laughs> you know, there's something villainous about grapes. Maybe. Yeah. They, you know raisins scare me yeah grape dying that yeah. is like murdering grapes for exactly. raisins um so yeah that's it we're we're, do, we're doing a halloween party for children we have a five-year-old halloween party that i'm throwing which oddly has been the most fun party i've ever planned because it really brings me back to the parties you wanted to see that you saw on tv as a kid that no one ever threw a party like that like a party right. in hocus pocus like these like great cauldrons and you know really awesome kid friendly Halloween stuff just don't see it and so I'm trying to create that I doubt the five year olds will appreciate it but uh, that's what I'm doing sometimes you have to do it for you oh yeah <laughs> no yeah no I definitely took Max the other day to the Halloween shop and was like you really need five more of these pumpkins right <laughs> right and he's like no I think we're good I'm like shut up yeah I'm the worst this time of year where I'm just like of course I need this yeah you know pumpkin sconce <laughs> who doesn't need a pumpkin sconce exactly and then like go with your pumpkin ascot it's true but then like i will you know get it out next season and be like why do i own this oh yeah (laughs) exactly uh tiffany where can people find you uh obviously at my house on halloween with some annoying kids and some grapes um they can find me on facebook twitter instagram i uh generally post a lot of stupid shit but i also post where i'm gonna be at and what conventions are coming up uh but most importantly you can find he drinks at one of your local festivals and on reverie on uh, reverie in two days three days um you know go see killer kate and texas cotton and he drinks and have yourself a happy halloween oh my gosh i love a guest uh who does my end promo for me (laughs) usually i'll just be like well thank you tiffany make sure that you watch killer kate and blah 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 but you 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 are you're a pro But no, so in addition to those things, check out uh, Tiffany's back catalog. Some of the movies we mentioned up at the top, like The Violent Kind, The Hazing, she she loves The Frankenstein Syndrome. Abominable. Abominable. Hey, you know what? Sharknado 2. (laughs) Check them all out. Uh, And, you know, 
pop in some Britney and Destiny's Child to your Halloween playlist in honor of yes. this amazing guest. Thank Tiffany, you. thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This is super fun. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night. Happy Halloween. And good luck. <laughs>